0: You are receiving this transmission. You are Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Network. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to episode 77 of Reclaiming the Faith. This is going to be part one of my interview with Chuck Pike, and I am so excited to bring that to you. But before I do that, I want to give you a preview of the first song off of my upcoming eight song album. The song is called Send Me. And it's kind of based out of Isaiah six and Isaiah 53. And I hope it is a blessing to you.
1: well acquainted with pain pierced through crushed oppressed innocent his blood
0: Well, yeah, that was "Send Me," uh, a little snippet of "Send Me," the opening track off my upcoming album. But let me get into my uh, my guest for this episode and next episode is is Chuck Pike, and I've just been so blessed by Chuck Pike's teaching on shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, Chuck is an environmental engineer whose professional career is focused on water and wastewater treatment. He's been actively involved in Bible teaching for three decades. His ministry is focused mainly on expository teaching along with prophecy-based apologetics and the kingdom perspective, incorporating insights from the early Christians. Chuck lives in the Boston area, with his wife, Allison, and their two children. And I've put links to uh, a couple of series that y'all can find uh, from Chuck's teachings. One is called the Prove It Apologetics series, and the other is just a link to the sermons that he preaches on Wednesdays and Sundays. So please go check those out. Also, please check out philsbaker.com where you can find everything that I do, uh, whether it be podcasting stuff, Patreon stuff, music, Blogs go, check out philsbaker.com. Also, I am blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's 4th Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With an Answer. So you definitely want to check that stuff out. You can check out our YouTube channels, Justin Fall's channel, BDK's channel, Omega Frequency, and my YouTube channel, uh, Phil Baker, where we're all putting out content every week. My wife and I are doing a uh, verse-by-verse expository teaching of The Book of Philippians, and I really want to encourage y'all to check that out every Wednesday night, live at 7 p.m. Central Time. Finally, uh, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can find, you can buy your copy for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into part one of my interview with Chuck Pike (laughs) All right, uh, Chuck Pike. Thank you so much for coming on the uh, Reclaiming the Faith today, man.
2: My pleasure. Thank, thank you for, thank you for having me. I'm. It's an honor.
0: Oh, oh man, this is this is gonna be great. So, uh, for those who who don't know who you are, um, will you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, Chuck Pike, um, um, uh, married, my wife Allison, and I live in Boston area, Massachusetts, Uh, two children, one grandchildren, a child, another on the way. Um, I have been teaching the Bible for a few decades, uh, for a while in a big church in Boston, and then on a mission team in Eastern Europe, and uh, leading a house church now in Boston. I have great passion for the Word of God. Uh, it's one of the great joys in my life to be able to uh, teach the Bible and to, and to uh, focus a lot on um, teaching the Old Testament to Christians and uh, also y- using the, the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament to, uh, to persuade others, to convince others based on the evidence of the prophecy. So I use a lot of plot in apologetics, but I, I teach... All over the Bible, I teach a lot, do a lot of expository teaching, and um, so that's that's kind of who I am and what I do. I'm on I'm on the board of directors of Sattler College in Boston. It's a new uh, Christian college here, just started up a couple of years ago. Uh, My professional background is is an environmental engineer, and um, in the process of retiring, I've scaled back to part time work doing that. So. Uh, primarily focused on the kingdom of God and other things. So that's, that's, that's a little, little overview.
0: Amen. And that's, that's great. Uh, Just a little sidebar here. I remember uh, early on in in my ministerial uh, life, um, running into a man who said, well, he only carried, and he'd been a Christian for decades, but he only carried a copy of the New Testament and Psalms. He said, because he he really didn't need the Old Testament at all. And I was
2: just like, that's <laughs> okay. not what the earliest
0: Christians
2: did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, uh, man. So, uh, how did you come to know Jesus, Chuck?
2: Well, I was raised, um, I was raised Roman Catholic in New Jersey and um, believed for a while up until my 20s. And then at some point in time in my 20s, I just thought, why am I doing this? why do I believe this? I mean, if, if I was raised in India or in Saudi Arabia, I'd have a different religion than I do. I just have the religion I was raised with. How do I know this is the truth? Mm. And I didn't have an answer at the time. And uh, I didn't, and no one provided me with, with a good answer. So I, I just basically uh, decided at that point in time in my 20s, I was an agnostic. And uh, my sister, Alicia, became a Christian. She moved up to Boston area. And so I was passing through Boston, and uh, my sister dragged me off to church, had me meet her friends, and I saw these people, whatever they are, they're very serious about what they believe. They can answer the the questions with Scripture. And uh, so that got me interested so I started reading the Bible on my own, ended up moving to Boston and people ask you, did you come to Boston for school? Did you come for a job? Did you come for a girlfriend? And actually, no, no, no. The only reason I came to Boston was to study the Bible. I just wanted to find out I thought if Jesus is the son of God, the Bible is the word of God, then uh, that's the most important thing in life. And if it's not true, then I can go on and whatever. So, that's kind of, that's why I moved to Boston to study the Bible. So I just dove into the scriptures, had lots and lots of questions, um, and, and ultimately I uh, was asking, asking questions that some people didn't know an answer. They passed me off to other people who finally someone, I was, I was handed off to someone who could answer the questions with scripture and reason and logic and uh, so uh, after several weeks of intensive study, I decided I believe this is true. Jesus was the Son of God, died on the cross, rose from the dead. I want to be a Christian. And, and I had been baptized as an infant um, in the Catholic Church. And I, you know, I saw that faith was necessary uh, to be saved. And so I, 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 I appreciate what my parents did. But I thought I've got to make my own decision if I'm going to become a Christian it's got to be my own faith so i was I was made the decision to get baptized as an adult and uh been a Christian ever since
0: mm. man that's that's a great testimony i've I've run into a lot of agnostics that don't really want to know the truth yeah they're content with just saying I don't know and man, I just I praise God that you were not like that that you really made a conscientious effort to discover the truth, and man, that's just great. So, um, how did you get introduced to the anti-Nicene writings, and what kind of effect did they have on shaping your biblical worldview?
2: Okay, I got into the the anti-Nicene writings, Um, uh, the book, The Real Heretic's was extremely popular in the church that I was in in Boston. In fact, the church ordered a thousand copies of the book and they asked everyone in the church to read it. Now, David Brousseau was stunned. He'd never heard of this group and and was was shocked that some group out there had such an interest in his book. So that put the group on, on David's radar for sure. So the, the, the church leadership was pushing the book and I was very skeptical of the church leadership so i my attitude was if they're pushing this book it must be advancing their agenda so i don't want to read it so (laughs) so i didn't read the book everybody else read the book and i didn't and then a good friend of mine said chuck you really need to read this book so i read it and i was enthralled by this and at the end of the book the real heretics the reason that the church leaders liked it because in in the course it was it was a Church, church of Christ, and, and and the book was basically validating uh, a whole lot of things that the church was teaching, hmm. which went against uh, uh, kind of uh, mainstream evangelical uh, thinking. So, right. so so that's why the, the book was very popular in the church. So I I, I read it, loved it. And I thought, what else does this guy have? So I started listening to audio messages by David Bersow. Whenever I was driving somewhere, I put, I pop a, a, a message on, a cassette or a CD, whatever it was at the time. <clears throat> so I got an enormous education from David Bersow hmm. and, and read his other books. and um, uh, And then he said, don't trust me. Go and read the Anonicene writings for yourself. So I went and got a copy of the 10-volume set Ananiacine Fathers and decided I'm going to read the Ananiacine writings for myself. And my, my interest was the church I was in claimed that we were just like the first century church, but I saw things in the church that didn't look like what I saw in the Bible. So
1: hmm.
2: it was frustration on my part and being in an imperfect church that threw me back to to answer questions that i had of why doesn't the church i'm in look like what i'm reading in the bible am, am i missing something here what was the church like in the beginning so that was a question i had i wanted to know how did they handle discipleship in the church how was the church organized what did they believe what did they teach so that was how i got started so i started reading um, I took Bersow's advice. I read, um, I want to get some backgrounds. So I read, I read uh, uh, backgrounds of the Role of Christianity by Ever Ferguson first. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading some of the, um, uh, you know, Justin Martyrs, uh, first yeah. apology, um, uh, Clement of Alexandria. So, so some of the early works that, um, uh, uh, scroll publishing has put out in on format. So I read through those and then I dove into Ananiacine fathers and, uh, uh, I was teaching the Old Testament and I got so much more out of the Anicene Fathers than I ever thought I would, because mm-hmm. I realized in reading through that when I got to, I was reading through volume one, I got when I got to Justin Martyr, yeah. and his, his first apology, second apology, especially dialogue with Trifo, mm-hmm. I was I was staggered at the way he read the Old Testament. Yeah. And the prophecies and the connections that he saw that I had never heard anyone explain in quite the same way. So uh, I was teaching a lot of old Testament, but it really, uh, it really added so much to my understanding of the old Testament that I started weaving the insights of the early Christians into the teaching I was doing. And, uh, That some people loved it. Other people felt very threatened by that. That's, that's another story. So (laughs) that's, that's how I got started with, and I fathers.
0: Yeah. You know, um, like, uh, the epistle of Barnabas has so much typology in it, kind of like Justin Martyr's first and second and apology and dialogue with Trifo. Um, It's just incredible the way it makes Luke 24, for me, it makes Luke 24 kind of come alive when Jesus is explaining to his disciples all the different ways that he is is typified or shadowed, I guess, in the Old Testament. Uh And uh, it's just, and and then that kind of took me to... um, to looking at Paul, the way he will use typology and allegory as well. And it's like, I didn't realize this. I was reading it and I didn't see it until like the early Christians made it so plain, I guess. So like, what are some of your favorite examples of old Testament typology and what role can typology play in both defending and strengthening our faith?
2: Um, Well, David Bersow wrote the book Common Sense, and and the brother who suggested I read The Real Heretics said, if if you really want to read something radical, he said, read uh, Common Sense. And so I read that book, and one of the chapters in there talks about how the early Christians read the scriptures, the Eastern versus the Western type of prophecies, and the Eastern being the allegorical type prophecies the were each of the elements in 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 the um, in the story represents something uh, of spiritual significance like the Passover lamb hmm. uh, and the um, um, you know uh, in John chapter 3 as Moses lifted up the bronze yeah. snake in the wilderness so and and the other thing that berce mentioned in that chapter was that the early Christians saw a number of foreshadowings and, and uh, typology that wasn't necessarily mentioned by the New Testament writers, and that was an eye-opener to me. And then when I saw it, read Justin Martyr, uh, I realized, ah, I, I see what they're talking about, and it made such sense to me. Some of the, some of the, uh, uh, like, like, I mean, honestly, the, the um, epistle, uh, uh, the epistle, uh, the, uh, 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 the shepherd of Hermas, mm. uh, seemed like a little bit of a stretch. To, to right. Some of the things that were in there, I thought, I don't know about this. I don't know about this, but whatever. Yeah. And then I read uh, dialogue with Trifo. And I mean, I'm an engineer, so I'm very, I'm very logical, <laughs> mm. logical, skeptical type person. Yeah. So, but, but what he was pointing out there was, was so clear. I mean, one of the things that, uh, uh, really, uh, uh, touched me in the beginning was he was talking about, and I think it's in Exodus uh, 17, where um, the Amalekites yeah. attack the um, the Israelites in the wilderness, and Moses is told to go up and stretch out his hands with the staff of God in his hands and, and, and hold it up all day long, and that that's the posture he has to hold. And then he has a man on each side, Aaron and her, holding up his hands. And and Justin Martyr points out, he's not the only one to point this out, is that he's, he's making the form of Jesus on the cross. Yeah. And that this is the way that the battle is won. This is the only way. That the battle can be won, and I thought, wow, this is absolutely amazing, and and mm. that 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 uh, definitely um, uh, uh, stopped me right in my tracks. Mm. Uh, another one was, uh, I think, it was in Justin Martyr also. He talked about the. Um, um, well, I, I, another one is just the the fact that Moses is succeeded by Joshua, mm. and I think Justin Martyr talks about. He says he was succeeded by Jesus, the son of none. I said, "Oh, it's a mistake. It's Joshua." And I go back and look. I'm looking at the Septuagint. I said, "No, he's right. Yeah. In Greek, it's Jesus, and that's in, in Hebrews when it talks about uh, uh, Joshua, you know, in the Old Testament one, and 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 Jesus of Nazareth. It's the same exact word. So, yeah. and I'm thinking, wow, the early Christians are reading this about Moses. You know, they're reading the Septuagint, and they're reading, Moses can't enter the promised land, and he's concerned that the people not be like sheep without a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And so he's told to lay his hands on Jesus, the one who will finish the job and bring the people in the promised land. I thought, wow, that's absolutely amazing. So um, and I, but I, the early Christians pointed out, and I said, oh, they're 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 wrong." And I, I this is this is, Jesus, Joshua, not Jesus. But I, so I went back and looked at that. Uh, there's this story of uh, uh, the Rahab and the scarlet cord. Well, mm. why is it a scarlet cord? Why does it mention the the, the details in a lot of these stories yeah. that are mentioned? Why scarlet cord? Well, you know, the whole city is wiped out, and only the the one uh, the one room of people that are protected by the scarlet cord. Well in the early Christians point out this is the force it's the blood of Christ. Yeah. That when Jesus comes to destroy the city, only Rahab and her household protected by the scarlet cord, just like the, the Israelites protected by the blood of the Lamb. It's the same the same the same idea. So but it just there's so many examples. Uh, one of the, one of my absolute favorites uh, it's uh, maybe my favorite of all is is um, the life of Moses. Um, uh, Eusebius points this out in Proof of the Gospel Book 3. He he gives a better explanation than than anybody I've run into. And you know, Eusebius is not until the 320s. Right. But uh, he points out the significance of the Deuteronomy 18 prophecy mm. that God said in the future, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. And Eusebius rattles off, off the top of his head, about a dozen extraordinarily, extraordinary parallels between Moses and Jesus and then at the end of that, he says, "Well, you know, I don't have time to to explain all the rest of them. You can go back and figure it out for yourself." For yourself. Yeah. So, so, that's been one of my uh, favorite assignments over the years is just uh, really uh, exploring that in the life of Moses that that, that God said He would be, He would raise up a prophet like Moses. So. How do you know who that prophet is? Well, he's like Moses. Hmm. And, and so many details. And uh, I taught an apologetics class um, uh, to a group of, uh, my friend Finney Curavilla teaches as an apologetics group that meets on the Harvard campus. Uh, it's mostly grad students from the Boston area schools. And he's asked me to speak there a few times and, and probably the, the most popular lesson I ever taught there was on the the prof, on the parallels between Moses and Jesus. Mm. And um, I, I knew I was I was entering into a, a room full of skeptics so I said I'm I'm going to have you guys teach the class for me. I'm not going to teach it because you won't believe me. So <laughs> I said you I brought, I'm breaking up the life of Moses from Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy uh, and I'm assigning it to people in class and I said you make a list to me from each, each, each one had a piece of the life of Moses. And I said, okay, I want you to tell me reading this part of life, of Moses, what things in the story are extraordinarily like Jesus, meaning Moses and Jesus are the only people or virtually only people that share this in common. And, uh and when we got together at the after giving them time to do this we got together and we went through from beginning to end this massive list of extraordinary similarities and they were completely stunned at the power of this prophecy so uh, uh, that, that it's, it's an extra, it's perhaps the most detailed prophecy of all because you need to you need to look at the entire life of Moses from, the very beginning before he's born, even in his birth up until, um, up until the time that he dies, yeah, uh, right at the end. So the whole life of Moses is an, a spectacular foreshadowing of, of Jesus.
0: Man, that's, that's awesome. I wish I could have been in that class and just, or just been a fly <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> that would have been incredible. One of my, um... One of my favorite lessons that I've heard you teach, and this is on the Scroll Publishing website, is your lesson on Daniel, Yes, uh, seeing Christ in Daniel chapter 6. I know I didn't yes. put this in like the show notes, but would you mind giving just a few of the connections between Daniel 6 and uh, the last day, basically, of Christ?
2: Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, Daniel is... Um, one of the Daniel is exalted to a position where he's one of the top three in the kingdom, and um, his his enemies are upset. They're they're envious of his position. They don't want him to be ruling over them, and so they conspire and they catch him while he's praying, and he's praying. His habit is to pray three times. Well, who does that make you think of right. <laughs> right there? Jesus praying three times in the garden. He's down on his knees. He's praying three times in the garden. So uh, uh, so Daniel is, is praying and he's caught by his enemies while he's praying. He's dragged before the ruler. The ruler really doesn't want to sentence him to death, but feels trapped, which is just like what Pilate was, the situation that Pilate was in. Okay, and then he's condemned and thrown into the pit. And uh uh and then he comes out uh the next morning and the king goes to the does, goes to the edge of the pit and he, he's shocked to find out that he's alive, and he gets taken out uh unharmed, and his enemies are thrown into the pit of the lions. And the 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 strangest detail to me in the whole story is it says that his enemies were thrown into the lion's den, and it says, and their bones were broken before they hit the ground. Now, I have a hard time even imagining how that's possible, (laughs) that the lions would break their bones before they hit the floor, first of all. (laughs) Second of all, why does it bother to mention this detail in the story? It could have just said they were thrown in and the lions crushed them and ate them up, you know, but it says no. It says the lions broke their bones before they hit the floor. Well, what's the significance of that? When Jesus was crucified, none of his bones were broken in contrast to those who faced the same fate. And then after uh, Daniel comes out alive from the pit of death. Um, the, a proclamation goes out to all the nations and all the languages holding up the kingdom of God and, and the God who, who raised, uh, raised uh, Daniel from, from the pit of death. So you have in there, you have the Garden of Gethsemane, you have the trial before Pilate, you have the uh, the tomb the the broken bones and, and none of his bones are broken you have the resurrection and then you have the gospel proclamation going out to all the world in all different languages so and and that's all it's just in one chapter yeah uh, so so to me it's and you have to ask yourself okay is this a coincidence or <laughs> is this is this uh, Way too detailed to be a coincidence. Was this designed and put in there for a purpose? And uh, you know, I, I think it, it, if it was one or two or three things, okay, maybe. But there's just way too many details.
0: Man, I I had taught like done a study with a small group on uh, on Daniel six, trying to show the connections, and I totally missed everybody missed the, uh, none of the bones were broken and, and the bones being, you know, chewed up before they hit the ground of the, his oppressors, his enemies. So now that, that man, that's great. Um, well, come, coming back to, to Moses, uh, you've done a, just a great, great teaching on the Exodus map and like how, it uh, like 10 stations of the Exodus map. And I know Paul kind of, he, he, not kind of, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, how so many, uh, parts of the Exodus story and the wilderness wandering, uh, is, was written for our example or for, for an example for us, um, right. and how important that is that we stay away from idolatry and, um, not murmur and grumble, uh, for those who don't know, would you mind just like explaining what is the Exodus map? Maybe, sure. um maybe those 10 steps, 10 uh, stages and um, how it can serve as both a warning and encouragement for Christians on our journey with Christ.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the Exodus, the whole story of the Exodus journey, it's referenced three places in the New Testament. Um, it's in, in Jude, it's in Hebrews, and then in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes into more detail than the other three, but all all three uh, writers mention this, is that the story of the, the whole story of the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the Christian journey and what we have, what we face. So we are to learn from that. And so Paul explains, uh, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's explaining to them, you know, okay, you've been saved, but you've got to be very careful. You've got to be diligent to maintain your salvation in the end. That's the main point. Don't get involved in idolatry and these other sins. So and the point that he makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and, and and actually I was taught this, I was taught parts of this as, as a young Christian in my 20s, and I was so moved by this story, I thought wow, the Old Testament's really important. I want to devote my life to studying the Old Testament and teaching it to Christians. And so I've, I've dug further into this story, uh, but, th- but this had a, uh, a, a pivotal uh, role in my own decision to to focus so much uh, time and energy on the Old Testament. But Paul explains, he's, he said in the Corinthians, he said, look, all those people in the wilderness we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Mm. All right, so they're crossing through the water of the Red Sea. They have a wall of water on each side, and then they have the pillar of cloud and fire that's guiding them to the water and protecting them as they travel through the water. Okay, um, so, so. He's he's referring. Paul refers to the Red Sea as their baptism. They were all baptized in Moses and the cloud and the sea. Well, cloud and the sea—it's water and the Spirit. That's you know John three three to five. Hmm. Uh, you know you, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. So you've got the water and the Spirit there. The the uh, the Red Sea is the is the uh, the water and and the cl- pillar of cloud and fire is the the Holy spirit, showing the Holy Spirit. So. Uh, and I was reading. You know, I, was, I was in Albania, and I was. I've been teaching Moses for a long time. And I asked. I was. I was. I was in a, an Orthodox seminary, and I asked a teacher there. I said, "Is there anything, uh, any early writings that you guys are aware of that talk about Moses?" And one of them, one of them said, "Actually, there's Gregory of Nyssa." who's, I think he's in the 300s or 400s. He's, he wrote a book, a work called The Life of Moses. So Gregory Nyssa, I read that book, got a hold of Reddit, and read it. And and he explains a little bit more uh, in there as well. Uh, and you think about it. I, I asked I ask people this question and they all answered the same way. I said, okay, if the crossing the Red Sea is baptism, all right, the, the water and the spirit. Right. And if the 40 years in the wilderness is the Christian life, and if the promised land is heaven, what does Egypt represent? Hmm. And everybody says, it doesn't say anywhere in the New Testament, but everybody says the same thing. Well, Egypt is the time before you're baptized. You're in the world. Right. All right. Okay. Now, who is Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt? this dark kingdom who will not let his people go, who doesn't want to let them go and who pursues them and chases them and tries to pull them back. Well, that's obviously Satan. Yeah. Okay. So, so this story here, you start to look at the pieces together. You've got the old life, you've got Satan, you've got the, the Passover lamb is slain Okay? You have all the, the miracles that are performed before the people uh, before the, pa- the, the the ultimate the, the final uh, final plague is the, is the plague of the firstborn son where the Passover lamb is slain. Now we know the Passover Lamb represents the death of Jesus, the passion of Jesus. So we have all these miracles, leading up to the final miracle. And then that's the 10th plague. The ninth plague is three days of darkness. Well, what's the last miracle before Jesus dies on the cross? It's three hours of darkness, okay, over all the land. So the the miracles that are performed are, are foreshadowing uh, you know, i would be, be another lengthy discussion talk about that, but the miracles that Moses did are foreshadowing the miracles Jesus did. Hmm. The last two being, uh, you know, three hours of darkness and then the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus being the Passover lamb. Yeah. Uh, we're familiar with the, the connections there. So after the Passover lamb is slain, the people can depart from the land of slavery, okay, so it, to me, it's, it's very useful to see this world is slavery, with spiritual slavery. Mm. And 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 the people were told, whatever you do, don't go back to Egypt. Don't look back longingly at mm. the fleshly desires that you had back there. Don't go back there. No matter what you do, don't ever go back there. Don't go back there for horses. Don't go back there for food. Don't go back there for anything. Okay, so that's the whole—that's the whole lesson there. Don't go back. You know, we've been—we've been—we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been liberated. Get out of the dark kingdom. Get out of and and then what happens is the people uh, pass through the water. Two things happen. One is the Israelites are liberated from bondage, and that's the only way they can get out of, of Egypt. There's the only way out. Okay, Jesus said. Uh, no one can, can, uh, enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again to born water and the spirit. That's the only way out. So, uh, uh, then, uh, so, so they, they have to pass through the water. There's no other way out. And, um, uh, the water is their path to safety, but the armies of Pharaoh are drowned in the water. Okay. So it's, it's liberation and it's also death hmm. to the forces of evil. Um, They get to the other side. They're not in the promised land. They are in a time of testing. Okay, and that's what this life is. You know, this isn't one saved, always saved. This is, okay, now you're saved, you know, uh, just just party on. This is, no, we're in the time of testing. And they were tested in the wilderness and 600,000 men, two made it. And, and I mean, that's the lesson of the story is that the people fell because of all these sins that they committed in the wilderness. They, they worshiped the golden calf. They got involved in idolatry. They got involved in sexual immorality of the Moabite women. They were complaining about everything. Uh, people don't think that's a serious sin, but, but it is. And uh, so we are in the time of testing. Okay, we're, we're in, this may not look like it, but we are in the desert full of snakes scorpions, and tests. And we have to persevere and pass the test like Joshua and Caleb did to make it all the way to the end. And then it talks about 1 Corinthians. It says they all—they were all baptized. They all ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink. All right, I think that's the, we're being spiritually sustained by food and drink. Right. And uh, you know, think of the, uh, the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. in connection with that. Um, so there, and it says they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, the rock that followed them. Mm-hmm. So you have Christ present in their midst as they're going through the wilderness, sustaining them, and you have the pillar of cloud and fire guiding them. This is we're not orphans here. And he doesn't say, okay, everybody's on their own. No, they they hang together, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit cloud, when the cloud lifts, they pack up and they go and they go follow wherever it leads them. And then when it descends, that's where they set up camp. So, and I was in a in a, a church group where they, I think, in, in a reaction against Pentecostalism. Uh, years ago, they really practically threw the Holy Spirit out. out. Uh, you know, they didn't believe in the importance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, and that's, that's about the extent of it. But the Holy Spirit was guiding them through the wilderness. Jesus said in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, he says, I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. Right, and the, it so it shows the importance of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this time of testing in the wilderness, to lead us to the promised land. So uh, you know, so anyway, this I don't know. Every every time I teach, the you know there might be ten stations, there might be twelve stations, there might be fifteen stations. It's just, but it, the whole journey, the whole journey is. Uh, the details of the journey are so important, but I mean, that's why I think the book of Exodus and Numbers is so important for Christians because this is the roadmap hmm. of the Christian life. This is what it's going to take to make it to the end, you know. And 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 all the pitfalls are laid out for us in these stories. So I think this is so valuable for Christians. I, mean, I refer to it as the the Exodus map. This is the map of how. The entire journey from from being lost and under the grip of Satan, to to making it all the way to the, to our destination.